because that's what I want to talk to you about this morning. I want to talk to you about the, the promise of the Spirit, the promise of the Holy Spirit, that what we have is something long expected. So I want to talk about the promise of the Holy Spirit made, the promise kept, and the promise applied. The promise of the Holy Spirit made, kept, and applied. And as we consider that, let's pray and ask for God's blessing upon us. Father, thank you for the great privilege of being part, a living member of a living spiritual organism united to you by the Holy Spirit. Thank you for the privilege of being part of this living thing, spiritually alive. Thank you for this. We pray as we consider it this morning that you would draw near and you would make this to be as only you can because we have no safety net. That you would make this to be a great blessing to your people and a means of salvation to sinners by your power. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I'm not going to look at all the passages where the promise is made, but it's interesting that the promise of the Holy Spirit is made both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. And it's interesting to note, and I note it, and it's pretty simple, that the New Testament begins in Matthew 1.1. First of all, Genesis 22 and verse 18. This is the occasion in which Abraham offers up Isaac. And you have a promise, an oath-bound pledge, which really forms the framework for everything else that's about to happen afterwards in redemptive history. And that's the pledge that God makes to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And it culminates with this promise of Genesis 22, 18. He says, In your seed will all the families or nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So, what does that have to do with the Holy Spirit? Ah, Peter says in Acts chapter 3, verse 25 and 26, you are sons of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with our fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your seed, will all the families of the earth be blessed. To you first, that is to you Jews, God, having raised up his servant Jesus, the seed of Abraham promised, the promised heir and descendant of Abraham, and to thy seed, Paul says, which is Christ, God, having raised up his servant Jesus, sent him to bless you in turning every one of you away from your iniquities. The blessing is gospel blessing. It's blessing conveyed through the gospel. It's the blessing of spiritual life. Then Paul says in Galatians 3.14 that the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through Jesus Christ, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. The blessing of Abraham. In thy seed, Jesus Christ, will all the families of the earth be blessed, Jews and Gentiles, blessed with gospel blessing, spiritual blessing, through Jesus Christ. Paul in Galatians expounds it. And he says that the blessing of Abraham comes to those who believe it's the righteousness of Christ and it's the spirit of Christ 
given to those who believe, that God gives to believers from every kindred, tribe, and tongue the blessing of Christ's righteousness and the blessing of the Holy Spirit in accordance with the promise that he made to Abraham when he said, and in your seed who is Jesus Christ, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. That promise regulates the whole of redemptive history and everything that happens afterwards. So everything from Exodus to Malachi and the whole New Testament is all fulfillment of the promise made in Genesis. Yeah, that's right. It's all the outworking of that promise to send Christ and to bless all the families of the earth with spiritual blessing by faith in Christ. And one of the aspects of that spiritual blessing is that he gives believers the righteousness of Christ. He imputes the righteousness of Christ to the record of everyone who believes in him. And he imparts the spirit of Christ to the heart of everyone who believes in him. Promise of the spirit. Then the second passage is Ezekiel 36, 26, and 27. And here he speaks of a remnant of God's people returning from captivity. And upon that restoration, he promises to transform the people of God morally and spiritually. He promises to reform them under a new covenant as a regenerate society with hearts of flesh upon whose hearts he writes his moral law, and then to give them, in fulfillment of the promise, the Holy Spirit to live in them and dwell in them and enable them to live a life of gospel obedience. And so he says in Ezekiel 36, verse 26, a new heart will I give you. He will transform the people of God. And a new spirit will I put within you. And I will take away the stony heart of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. God's people under the old covenant, for the vast majority of them, for the most part, were stiff-necked and uncircumcised in hearts and in ears. But Jesus comes and he transforms them morally. And it shall come to pass. The very passage we quoted, Peter says in Acts chapter 3, that every soul that will not hearken or listen to that prophet, Jesus, will be cut off from among the people. Everyone among the Hebrews, Hebrew Israel, that won't become Jesus' disciple, listen to Jesus, and learn from Jesus, will be removed. So Jesus doesn't hold an inquisition where he brings every single Hebrew before his tribunal, but rather he forms a society. He forms them of all those who are listening to him and receiving his word. And he marks them out visibly with an ordinance. Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John. And they were all Jewish. He gathers them together. And if they weren't regenerate, they had no right to join that society of his disciples. So he marks them out. And the rest are removed. And then... He, in that way, he forms a regenerate society. He reforms the people of God. He cuts off the unbelievers from the people of God. And then he grafts believing Gentiles into that society. And he creates Christian Israel. That's what he does. He radically changes the society of God's people. He makes a new covenant. This is the covenant that I'll make with the house of Israel after those days. I'll write my law on their hearts. He regenerates the entire society of God's people. This is the promise. A new heart I'll give you. A new spirit I'll put within you. I'll take away the stony heart out of your flesh. Give you a heart of flesh. That's the foundational promise. And Jesus does that. He forms that regenerate society that only the regenerate have the right to join. The society of his disciples. Then what happens? Listen to the next part of the promise. And I will put my spirit within you 
verse 27, and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will keep my judgments and do them. Not only is he going to create a regenerate society, but then he is going to inhabit that regenerate society with the Holy Spirit. I will put my spirit within you. And the indwelling spirit who dwells in the people of God will enable them to walk and live in gospel obedience to his law. To his moral law that he writes on the heart. And so he has placed the Holy Spirit in that regenerate society of his disciples. And for the last 2,000 years, he has enabled his people under the new covenant to walk in gospel obedience to his revealed will by the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. I will put my spirit in you and cause you. Ironically, we just considered it in Sunday school this morning. How the Holy Spirit works in us to will and to work. The Holy Spirit dwells in our hearts. He dwells in the church and he works upon our wills and he works upon our hearts so that in our wills we purpose, choose, and resolve to obey God. And in our hearts we try and strive and labor to obey God and that the Holy Spirit produces in us. I will put my spirit in you and cause you, cause you to walk in gospel obedience. Genuine evangelical obedience characterizes the church in every generation because God has put the Holy Spirit in us and works upon our hearts, on our wills and our souls to enable us to live in gospel obedience to God. This is the evidence of the presence of the Holy Spirit with his people under the new covenant in every generation. It has been so since the apostolic generation, since Jesus formed and endowed the church, and it will be so in every generation until he comes. This is the promise. Of course, it's kind of hard to speak about the promise without the fulfillment. You got the idea. I'm just talking about the promise made. You can see how in opening up the promise made and what it means, you can see how it's kept. But I'll get to how it's kept in a minute. All right, one final text. In the Old Testament, the promise made is in Joel 2, 28, 29. Joel 2, 28-29, where we read, And it shall come to pass afterward, afterward, that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Your sons and daughters will prophesy, your old men will dream dreams, your young men see visions, and also on my servants and on the handmaids in those days. I'll pour out my spirit. He promises to pour out the Holy Spirit on all flesh, on believers from every branch and every sector of humanity, believing men and women, young and old believers, on believers in service, butlers and maids, servants and handmaids. He promises that his spirit will disclose a new body of special revelation through prophecy, dreams, and visions. He closely connects this promise with a call to repent and turn to the Lord, with God having pity on his people and restoring to them the years that the locusts have eaten and dwelling among them to deliver them from sin and shame and with gospel deliverance from sin in heavenly Zion for all who call on the name of the Lord. If you read the context, Joel 2.13, Joel 2.18, Joel 2.25, Joel 2.27, and Joel 2.32, all these passages in the context indicate that this promise is connected with the coming of Christ with the accomplishment of redemption and with the blessing of God's people under the new covenant. 
then the promise is also made in the New Testament. In the New Testament. All, first of all, the ministry of John the Baptist. All four Gospels record God's promise of the Spirit through his prophet John that we read about in the consecutive reading this morning. As John baptizes or immerses in water, so Christ baptizes or immerses in the Holy Spirit. And when John sees the Spirit abiding on Jesus, he knows that Jesus is the Christ who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. So when the Holy Spirit inhabits the church, he immerses the church in his purifying influence. It's also promise, the promise of the Spirit, also recorded in the public ministry of Christ. And at the Feast of Tabernacles, Jesus proclaims the gospel. And he promises the blessing of the Spirit to those who believe in him. John 7 37 and 39. On the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried, saying, If anyone thirst, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, from his inward part will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke of the Spirit, that those who believe in him should receive. For the Holy Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. The promise of the Spirit wasn't yet fulfilled at the time of Jesus' public ministry, but the fulfillment of the promise awaited the glorification of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's pretty clear, isn't it? And just before he accomplished redemption on the eve of his death he focuses on this promise and he encourages his disciples with the promise of the spirit and he promises that the spirit will indwell the society of believers and he promises that God the Father and God the Son will send God the Holy Spirit to inhabit the church and he identifies the spirit who's going to come as the comforter and the Holy Spirit, and the Spirit of truth. And he promises that God the Spirit, the breath of God, who proceeds from the Father, will declare the word of God. He will teach the apostles comprehensively about Christ, redemption from sin, and the world to come. And accordingly, when the promise is fulfilled, the Holy Spirit inhabits the church and he dwells with believers as the Comforter and the Holy Spirit and the Spirit of Truth. And I could read you some of these texts. I think I will. John fourteen seventeen, The Spirit of Truth, whom the world cannot receive because it doesn't see him or know him, but you know him because he dwells with you and he will be in you. John 14.26 But the Comforter, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance, whatever I said to you. John 15.26 But when the Comforter is come, whom I will send you from the Father, even the Spirit of truth, the breath of God, who proceeds from the Father, he will testify of me. John 16, 13. Howbeit, when he, the spirit of truth, is come, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak of himself, but whatever he hears, he'll speak. And he'll show you the things to come. So he will give complete comprehensive revelation to the apostles about Christ, about everything Christ spoke to them, about redemption accomplished, and about the world to come. The second coming of Christ, an eternal state. 
That's the promise. And then after Christ's resurrection, before he ascends to heaven, he makes the final promise of the coming of the Spirit. He affirms, he says, as John immersed in water, so the society of believers will be immersed in the Holy Spirit. He promises that when the Spirit comes upon them, they will receive power to proclaim Christ effectively to the world. And therefore, when the Holy Spirit immerses the church in his special presence, he enables it to evangelize a hostile hostile world with boldness, compassion, and grace. He endows the church with the power and ability and capacity and strength to accomplish effectively everything Christ has commissioned the church to do, to evangelize the world effectively, to worship God acceptably in spirit and truth, and to love God's people genuinely from the heart. Luke 24, 49, he says, Behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry in the city of Jerusalem, until you are endowed with power from on high. And again, he said to them in Acts 1, For John truly immersed, baptized in water, but you will be immersed, baptized in the Holy Spirit, not many days from now. But you will receive power. After that, the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and what? will they do in that power? And you will be witnesses to me, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. The promise made. Now look with me at the promise kept. Promise kept. We've already seen from the, quote, analogy of Scripture and the promise made to Abraham and the promise through Ezekiel has been kept. But notice what the New Testament reveals about the fulfillment or keeping of this promise. The Scripture reveals God's faithfulness in keeping this promise And it describes its fulfillment with a rich variety of terminology. Being immersed in the Spirit, receiving the Spirit, Christ giving the Spirit, the Spirit indwelling the church, indwelling believers, sending the Spirit, that is the special presence of God in the Spirit coming to earth, the Spirit becoming present, the Spirit coming upon people, being filled with the Spirit, pouring out the Spirit, the Spirit descending on people, the Spirit inhabiting people. All those ways the fulfillment of the promise is described. And it connects the fulfillment of this promise with Christ and His donation of the Holy Spirit with the special ministry of the apostles and with faith. Christ the apostles, and faith. First of all, Christ. After Christ accomplishes redemption, God fulfills the promise of the indwelling Spirit. When Christ returns to heaven, raised from the dead in his glorified body, reigns on the throne, and then he pours forth from heaven the blessing of the Holy Spirit in fulfillment of these promises. Resurrected and exalted, he immerses those who believe in God's special presence in the Holy Spirit. Acts 2.33, Peter explains Pentecost. Therefore, being by the right hand of God exalted, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this, which you see and hear. And he describes this outpouring of the Spirit at Pentecost 
as the fulfillment of the prophecy of Joel. Explicitly. And when God the Spirit first indwells the society of believers in Jerusalem, God attests this momentous redemptive event with supernatural phenomena. There's the roaring sound of a strong wind and the sight of flaming tongues resting on each of them who believed. And the loud noise draws the attention of a large crowd composed of people from many different ethnic groups with different native languages who were in Jerusalem for the Feast of Pentecost. And accordingly, when the indwelling spirit immerses these believers in his influence, he gives them utterance to proclaim the works of God in the native languages of everyone who hears them. Acts chapter 2, verse 6 to 8 and 11. And when this sound occurred, the multitude came together and were confused because everyone heard them speak in his own language. Then they were all amazed and marveled, saying to one another, Look, aren't all those who speak Galileans? And how is it that we hear each in our own language in which we were born? We hear them speaking in our own tongues the wonderful works of God. And this, is, this fits with Christ's promise that the indwelling spirit will empower and enable the apostles to testify to the uttermost parts of the earth about Christ and the gospel. And the indwelling spirit enables the church in every generation to evangelize the world in the native languages of those who hear the gospel. For example, as of 2020, the entire Bible has now been translated from Hebrew and Greek into over 700 languages. And the New Testament has been translated, the New Testament in Greek has been translated into an additional approximately 1,500 more languages. And that this was the way the gospel was going to come to people in their own native tongues by the power of the Holy Spirit was signified, symbolized at Pentecost through the miracle of those Galileans speaking and everyone that was there hearing them in their own native coming of the Spirit gives the church power. Power to testify of Christ. Later on, we read in Acts 4, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they spoke the word of God with boldness. Power to testify effectively of Jesus is the power of the Holy Spirit. That's the power that he gives. The next thing associated with the fulfillment of this promise is the ministry of the apostles. Now again, I'm just going to summarize this. I'm not going to get into this in detail because I want to focus on the third and final way. But this is special in redemptive history. The apostles have a special role and place in redemptive history that is foundational and unique. Paul says, the signs of an apostle were wrought in me in all mighty works and miracles and wonders. Through their ministry, the Holy Spirit corporately inhabits various groups of believers. It, the, the New Testament records three instances in which the apostles have a special role in the fulfillment of this promise of bringing the Holy Spirit to groups of First, in Acts chapter 8, to a group of believers in Samaria. 
Second, in Acts chapter 10, to the believing household of a devout Gentile in Caesarea named Cornelius. And thirdly, in Acts chapter 19, to a group of some 12 disciples of John the Baptist that become Christ's disciples. Now, and in these three instances, sometimes the apostles lay hands on the whole group. Sometimes they don't lay hands on them, but they proclaim the gospel to the group. Sometimes they proclaim the gospel to them and lay hands on them. But in all instances, it's through the apostles. And at times, God attests this corporate coming of the Holy Spirit to the entire group with supernatural indications, like speaking in uh, tongues in the native languages of others. Sometimes he doesn't. But God, by his spirit, unites all who believe in Christ in one living spiritual organism. And he gave the apostles a special role in the establishment of that living spiritual organism and including people from every branch of the human race in it. That's the lesson, is the important, crucial role of the apostles in the establishment of this living spiritual organism. And then the final thing, connected with it in the New Testament. So it's connected with the exalted Christ pouring out the Spirit, the special role of the apostles. So we have the promise made, the promise kept. How is the promise kept? It's kept through the exaltation of Christ, through the special ministry of the apostles, and the promises kept by means of faith. The Holy Spirit is given to groups of believers, assemblies of believers, and to individual believers who believe in Christ. The scripture features the divine habitation by the Holy Spirit of every local church. And I won't weary you this morning with all the texts. I'll just tell you. And I, I won't. No, I'm not, gonna, I'm not going down the road of how many fingers I have. You know how many fingers I have. Right? Right? I got one church for each finger. <laughs> church in Jerusalem. Oh, yeah, yeah. Right? Church in Jerusalem. Right? One. Start with the thumb in certain places in the world, don't you? Huh? One, right? Jerusalem, one. The churches of Judea, two. The churches in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia, three. The Society of Believers in Rome, and how you start with the thumb, four. The church in Corinth, five. The churches of Galatia, six. The church in Ephesus, seven. The church in Philippi, eight. The church in Colossae, nine. The church in Thessalonica, ten. I could go through passages and show you that the Holy Spirit came to live and dwell in his special presence in every one of those churches and societies of churches without exception. Now, they didn't all have the same... It's not recorded that they all had the same um, miraculous phenomena associated with that indwelling. That's not recorded. But what is recorded is the presence and power of the Holy Spirit as the comforter and as the enabler of those churches to do everything that Christ has commissioned this church to do. Every single church is indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And what was true of those churches is true of us. We all have the Holy Spirit. Every genuine church of Christ has the Holy Spirit. And what is true of every genuine church is also true of every genuine believer as he inhabits every true church corporately, so he inhabits every genuine believer at conversion personally. Ephesians 1.13, in whom you also trusted, after that you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. It's true of every believer in the church. It's true of the church. And it's true of every believer. 
Whoever repents from sin and becomes a follower of Jesus anywhere on earth in every generation receives the Holy Spirit. And in this way, Peter motivates his fellow Hebrews to get right with God. He says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of the Lord Jesus for the remission of your sins. Repent and become a follower of Jesus. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promises to you and to your children and to all that are afar off. Same promise. Repent, become a follower of Jesus, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That's the promise. When you repent and believe, And similarly, Paul says that the Spirit indwells every genuine Christian. Says Romans. Says in Romans chapter 8 and verse 9, if any man has not the Spirit of Christ, he's none of his. And again he says, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, meaning that the Holy Spirit of promise is the indication that you are genuine. It's the seal. It's the mark of those who genuinely belong to God and who have true religion. If any man has not the Spirit of Christ, he's none of his. Either you have the Holy Spirit or your religion's not genuine. Everyone who believes has the Holy Spirit. No exceptions. Not everyone who believes doesn't have the same gifts. But everyone who believes has the same spirit. Now, let's talk about then, finally. So we looked at the promise made in the Old and New Testament. Looked at the promise kept through Christ's resurrection and session and outpouring of the Holy Spirit through the special ministry of the apostles and bringing all these ethnic groups into the living body of those who believe in Christ and the church. And we've seen that by faith, societies of believers and individual believers at conversion receive the Holy Spirit. Now, so they have the promise made, promise kept. Now finally, the promise applied. So, let's say this is true. Suppose that Indeed, truth and fact, the Holy Spirit is promised and that every genuine believer has the Holy Spirit. So what? First of all, this is a call. This is what Peter said on the day of Pentecost. This is a call for people to get right with God. This is a call to get right with God. Later on, He provoked the leaders of his own Hebrew nation to jealousy with this. He said, we are witnesses of these things. And so is the Holy Spirit that God has given to those who obey him. And when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. But what did he say to them? He said to them, repent and become a follower of Jesus. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will come to your heart as a comforter, as a Holy Spirit, as a spirit of truth, spirit of adoption. And when he dwells in your heart, you will be comforted with peace and joy and hope and love. And when he dwells in your heart, you'll have communion with God as his loving child. You'll cry out, Abba, Father. When he dwells in your heart, he'll give you illumination. You'll understand the scriptures. Open up your mind so you can understand the scriptures. When he dwells in your heart, he'll cause you to walk in God's statutes and do them, and you will be able to have the comfort. That's interesting. I had to... Think quite a bit about this, he says. The Comforter, the Holy Spirit. The Comforter, 
Holy Spirit. Well, what does the Holy Spirit produce? He produces godliness. He produces holiness. He produces gospel obedience. He works in us to will and to work for his good pleasure. How is that comforting? It's comforting because you have a good conscience. And a good conscience is the is a great comfort. What a blessing and joy and peace it is to have a good conscience. And that's produced by the Holy Spirit. The, the, the comforter, as the Holy Spirit, produces gospel obedience, which gives us the unspeakable comfort of a good conscience. The comforter, as the Spirit of truth, shines light in our hearts so that we understand the scriptures. And all that God has done for us. We don't understand it comprehensively. Because we can't understand what's infinite completely. But we know the love of Christ truly and really. And we understand experientially the blessings that he has given us. And the price he paid to give us those blessings. The light shines. Spirit of truth shines light. And that brings great comfort. And he gives us hope. You don't have that right now. But you will. Repent. Get right with God. Become a follower of Jesus. And you will receive, by means of faith, at your conversion, the gift of the Holy Spirit. And as he imputes the righteousness of Christ to your record when you believe, so he will impart the Spirit of Christ to your heart when you believe. And you will have him in your heart as the Holy Spirit, Spirit of truth, Spirit of adoption, comfort. This is the promise. And this promise was not only made to the Jews on the day of Pentecost, it was made to their children and it was made to all who are far off, whoever hears the call of the gospel. Oh, that's the first thing it says, is get right with God. It entreats. With what a blessing is that? It's a down payment of heaven and eternal life. It also has some practical relevance for us who believe, for the saints. First of all, it calls us to testify. They were filled with the Holy Spirit. They spoke the word of God with boldness. Now, we're not all gifted preachers. But we all have the Holy Spirit. And if we have the Holy Spirit, then he enables us with boldness, with gospel courage, to tell people who are dying and going to hell what God has done for us in Christ. We can testify about the Lord with love, compassion, boldness, courage when we have the fullness of the Holy Spirit. Testify. Consecrate yourselves. 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 19. Don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? You're not your own. You're bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body And in the context, he's talking to the people in Corinth about living with sexual purity. Calls upon us as Christians to live with sexual purity in an impure world because we have the Holy Spirit living in our hearts. Our bodies are not our own. We are bought with a price. And it calls us to remain pure in our lives, with our eyes, with our mouths, with every part of our body because of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. Thirdly, calls us to praise God. He says in Philippians 3.3, we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and rejoice in Christ and have no confidence in the flesh. 
said it before, we have no safety safety net. If the Holy Spirit doesn't come and bless our worship, we are of all people most miserable. And there can be nothing more boring than being in a worship service where all you have is prayer and singing and the ministry of the word. Without the Holy Spirit, there's nothing more dull. But the answer, if we lack the Holy Spirit in our worship, is not to liven it up with man-made things. The answer is to pray for greater measures of the Holy Spirit and to praise God. And that we would know his presence with us in our worship in power in our prayers, in our singing, in the preaching of this holy word. And we need to support our fellow believers with love. 1 Corinthians 12, it talks about power. And we do have power. But listen to 1 Corinthians 12, 7 and 11. But to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit to profit with all. But All these works the one and the same Spirit, dividing to each one severally, even as he will. Now, he's enumerating the apostolic gifts associated with the foundation of the church in the first century. I understand that. But the same principle applies to the church in every generation. And Peter speaks more generally about this, more generically, in 1 Peter 4, 8 to 11. And that's, I want to take the principle of 1 Corinthians 12 and apply it in a more generic way to all of us because this is what Peter says. Now that's the principle. To each one is given a manifestation of the Spirit. That doesn't mean that each one of us has some apostolic gift, that we're all apostles or prophets or getting direct revelation. It's not talking about the fact that the apostolic gifts continue in every generation, that would be a misapplication of the text. The principle of the text is that God gives every believer spiritual power in every generation by the Holy Spirit for the purpose of using the gift God gave you for the benefit of his church in love whatever that gift is. Peter then speaks about it generically. But it wouldn't do for any of us to say, well, God hasn't given me any gift. Well, look, no. God hasn't given any of us apostolic gifts because we're not apostles and we're not living in the first century and we're not receiving direct revelation. There is no Revelation 23. The revelation stopped with Revelation 22. And we're not continually getting ongoing direct revelation like they did in the first century, like they did in the church in Corinth. Okay, I get it. The Bible's done. It ended with Revelation 22 in the apostolic generation. So we don't have apostles and prophets getting direct revelation. Revelation 23, Revelation 24. There is no such thing. It stopped. But that doesn't mean that the spiritual power has stopped. And it doesn't mean that the Holy Spirit has stopped endowing the church with power. That's not true. In fact, every Christian who believes has the Holy Spirit and has spiritual power given to you by the Holy Spirit for the benefit of the church. I think we run the danger of being so concerned that we state that, well, the, the, the apostolic special miraculous powers of the apostles have ceased, 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 ceased. Okay, but that's not, that may be the foundation, but that's not where we stop, folks. We don't just say full stop, end. Let me read First Peter 4. And above all these things, verse 8, have fervent love for one another, For love will cover a multitude of sins. And love will cover a multitude of smart aleck comments. Multitude of sins. Welcome to New York. Be hospitable to one another without grumbling. So that's the context. Now look. As each one has received a gift. 
minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. If anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. If anyone ministers, let him do it with the ability that God supplies, that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So he breaks the gifts into two basic categories, the speaking or ministerial or gifts of the word of God and the serving or practical or benevolent gifts. So you have, for lack of a better word, pastoral arm of the church gifts and diaconal arm of the church gifts. You have these ministering gifts and you have these teaching gifts. If you're going to be teaching, and don't be having man-centered teaching, but teach what the scripture says. You're going to be serving. Serve in God's strength. And every one of us has some kind of gift. Gifts to serve, gifts to teach. And every one of us has received those gifts for the benefit of the whole church. It's been my experience over the years. That's one of the things I typically ask people in oversight. I probably ask most of you this. If I haven't, shame on me. What capacities or gifts do you believe you have for the service of the church? Because every one of you has something. What do you have that can be used for the glory of God and in love for the building up of his people? Think about it. It's been my experience over the years, and I've been around quite a while, that people come into the church and if they've been in the church, this is just application, this is not dogmatic, but about 10 years they're in the church and if they're not doing something useful after 10 years, they're looking for another church. Because it's native in us as Christians by the presence of the Holy Spirit to want to be serving God's people and using the abilities that God has given us to do good to his people. Some of us have more teaching ability. Some of us have more serving abilities. But we've all got something that we can use. So here's the point. Here's the application. The power of the Holy Spirit hasn't stopped just because the miraculous evidences of the apostolic generation have stopped. Illumination in the scripture hasn't stopped because inspiration is finished with Revelation 22. Neither has the power stopped. So, labor to discern what God has given you to do. And to use that, whatever it is, for God's glory, out of love for his people. Finally, talk with your heavenly Father. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith, pray in the Holy Spirit. Abba, Father. What a privilege is ours to talk to God, to have access to God 24-7. But children have access to their parents. He's our loving Father. He's adopted us into his family. We can talk to him anytime. May God be pleased to bless his holy word that it would not return empty, but that it would accomplish his saving purpose in every one of our hearts. Let's pray.